This yes. is hell. Okie doke. If the world was perfect, it wouldn't be. This is hell. And for some people, the world would be perfect if everyone simply accepted and believed a myth. We have all heard the story that prior to agriculture, humans formed hunter-gatherer societies, and all of the hunting was done by men, and the gathering, well, that was women's work. But if you take the time to sit down and think about that story, even for a moment, it really doesn't make much sense. For instance, I introduce myself on every show as your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Now imagine, if you will, that we have access to a time machine that can take us back to the time before agriculture without bringing along any of the mod cons we have in our current day and age. So who do you think might be better suited to be a hunter? Me? Because after all, I am male. Or let's say, I don't know, my sister. I am legally blind, completely colorblind, with poor depth perception and such intense sensitivity to sunlight, I have to wear sunglasses or I cannot see at all. I am literally blinded by the light. My sister, on the other hand, is a gifted athlete, having ran track for a brief period of time at Michigan State University, an accomplished softball player playing in highly competitive Detroit-area softball leagues, and she is an avid hunter skilled with using rifle, Longbow and crossbow. She even knows how to field dress an animal. If you were a member of a hunter-gatherer society, who would you choose to be a hunter and who would you choose to be a gatherer? Would you want the blind guy hunting or would you want the gifted female athlete? It takes little time to realize that the man, the hunter myth is just that, a myth, a tale we tell ourselves that reinforces All sorts of sexist, misogynist, and patriarchal fantasies that have no basis in any reality, let alone the historic record or in what anthropologists observe when studying present-day hunter-gatherer societies and how they function. Yes, three new studies are reinforcing the man the hunter is, in fact, a myth, but it's not like the idea of man as hunter and woman as gatherer is new. Anthropologists have known the whole story was a fantasy dating back to the 1960s, nearly 60 years ago. Which leads us to wonder, what does that, why does that myth, I should say, why does that myth persist? We will ask that and plenty more questions in a few minutes when we speak with science journalist and columnist for Bloomberg Opinion interviewer and explorer Faye Flam, who wrote the Noema magazine article, The Man, The Hunter Myth Won't Go Away, persistent myths about strictly defined social roles for humans in the past only limit what it means to be part of society today. Faye works to make complex topics understandable for everyone. In pursuit of her stories, Faye has weathered storms in Greenland, gotten frost nip at the South Pole, helicoptered into equatorial cloud forests, and floated weightless aboard NASA's zero-G plane. In her writing career began at The Economist. Uh, Faye covered uh, particle physics and cosmology beat at Science Magazine before coming to the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer to write about science for the general public. She wrote two weekly science columns, starting with Carnal Knowledge, which covered the science of sex, and Planet of the Apes, which explored the topic of evolution. 
but not apparently, trademark infringement. Since leaving the Inquirer, she has written for the New York Times, Psychology Today, the Washington Post, and Forbes.com, and now writes again at Bloomberg. She has taught science writing to college students and worked as a journalism critic for the Knight Foundation. She is the host of the podcast, Follow the Science. On the most recent episode, Faye discusses the science of mask mandates for kids. Faye asks, should mask mandates for kids go all the way down to age two? Should kids have to keep masks on at recess? Should kids wear cloth masks despite little evidence of protection? Is universal masking in schools the new normal? Emotions are running high and relevant scientific studies are in short demand. So Faye speaks with Dr. Alyssa Schechter-Perkins and Dr. Vinay Prasad to explore what science can tell us, not just about whether kids should wear masks to school, but which kids under which circumstances and for how long. She is also the author of the 2008 book, the score, how the quest for sex has shaped the modern man. Find out more about Faye as well as her podcast at her website, FayeFlamWriter.com. That's F-A-Y-E-F-L-A-M Writer.com. Follow Faye on X at FayeFlam. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is... Well, Chris Colfan and Dan Kugler. Chris, how are you doing? Uh, fantastic. Really good this morning. Very perky and awake. So. so you were in North Dakota last week, correct? That is correct. And what were you doing out there? Why don't you tell people real quick? Well, um, one of my friends from the Sierra Club, uh, Tassine, she was uh, nice enough to invite me, and, and, uh, have, and she has me bring out two other people as well. And we drove up to Minneapolis to 350 uh, Minnesota office. Mm-hmm. And from there, we took a bus heading down to Bismarck, North Dakota, uh, to pretty much hear the hearing about the equi- uh, was called the Equity Impact Statement from the Army Corps of Civil Engineers in regards to, because they have a statement in regards to going over the Dakota Access Pipeline, and some of the uh, some of the members of uh, the Anishinaabe tribe, and also Honor the Earth, which is led by Winona LaDuke, mm-hmm. though she wasn't there, but uh, members of the Ogajina Peltier was there. Don Goodwin was there, and uh, we had a rally in front of the uh, in front of the Army Corps of Civil Engineers office. And after the rally, basically, we went inside. The only bummer about that was, um, it was it was a hearing, but none of the members of the Army Corps of Civil Engineers were there. Just one rep, but it was more like, how they set it up was, it wasn't a, like a, like, it was supposed to be a public hearing, but in a weird way, it would, what it was is, you go behind a black curtain and then you make a statement. <laughs> That's weird. It's very weird. And I know like a lot of the indigenous folks and the, and, and the people who are non-indigenous there who were there to basically express, you know, their their opposition to the Dakota X pipeline and the impact statement. The impact statement they released, their, the Honor of the Earth's issue with it was basically that uh, it sugarcoats a lot of stuff. It doesn't go over like the repeated, because it, it, it had some spills, like some slight spills repeatedly. And there's a giant spill that's going to really hurt uh, Lake Oahe, especially and where they grow rice and stuff like that. And it's going to impact them. And uh, they're sugarcoating it. There's still there's stuff that's taken out of there that they know that that, that the risks are a real fact. And at the end of the day, they want that pipeline shut down because it's a it's a risk to their livelihood, and not just theirs. It's also the community outside of the indigenous community that will hurt, be hurt by this as well too. So a lot of the indigenous folks are at the forefront of pretty much uh, fighting climate change and pipelines, which is kind of intertwined, obviously. So so what happened was, like my, me, myself, and other people did go behind the curtain and make the statement, but um, a lot of the folks, the indigenous folks, especially the Anishinaabe, they were there in the Lakota, because some of the people of the Lakota Anishinaabe that were there 
basically we're at Standing Rock too. Okay. So, so similar, you saw a lot of similar faces if you followed that story. So what happened was they were pissed. So one of the elders, um, basically, because just, of the black curtain. What? Or were they pissed just about the whole situation? The whole or? situation. Okay, okay. Because there's like, why, why aren't they here to hear, listen to us publicly? Sure. Why aren't they giving us the respect? Because it was some major exe- executive, they'd give them res- that respect. Right. So what they did here was um, they made uh, the one, one of the elders, uh, I'm pretty sure it was a Lakota elder, what he did was he picked up a cup, basically, and, uh, and put water in it and put some oil in there. And this is so safe. You should be drinking this. You should be drinking this water. And they made, they started making public statements anyway. They took a megaphone and eventually what they did also was anybody that was behind the black current to make a statement to the Army Corps of Civil Engineers Mm -hmm. would then go outside on a megaphone and make a statement in front of the entire office basically as well. And the statements were recorded. So that was pretty powerful in itself. But at the same time, I think uh, my, my personal opinion it was a major disrespect to the people that were there sure. to pretty much make a presentation against it and also to criticize the impact statement quite heavily. So. To you, what explains the black curtain? It's That's totally confusing to me. I don't understand why would they would have that. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, I went to Catholic school. It kind of reminded me of a confessional. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, so, that's really weird. So, yeah. So I went behind the black curtain for my own statement. And, and what happened was... Uh, it was two women, one one woman in her 20s, one woman looked she was looking maybe late 50s, early 60s. They were polite. Can you please make your statement? And then they had their little phone, like you know, like it was like uh, the app on the iPhone the way it records, you know, your audio. Right, right. And you just said it, and like, thank you very much. Have a nice day. And wow. and yeah, like was, they're just going through the motions to to eventually rubber stamp this pipeline. And the weird thing also is the fact that the rule they had, and when we went in there, um, one of the actors from Onto the Earth told us, and also one of the uh, organizers from uh, Sierra Club both told us basically that Try to make a personal statement that does not sound alike, because they will like uh, ignore, they will like pretty much uh, look over the X statements or count it as one if it's like the same repeated statement. Basically. Right. So. Wow, that's pretty intense. So, what is your next step? Are, are you going back? Or what's your next step in that process? Um, I'm open to going back. Um, but uh, right now, I'm not sure what the next step is right now. And if people want to follow the story, do you have any places you'd suggest? Maybe High Country News. What would you suggest? Uh, right now, uh, I know Sierra Club Illinois has a pretty much good social media page. I recommend following that or the Sierra Club Chicago, but Illinois, I think, was a little bit stronger in that department. And I would definitely follow Honor the Earth. Honor the Earth. So, social media. That's a major one I would follow most yeah. of all of them. So. That's what I was thinking, too. And Dan Kugler, uh, anything new in your world, sir? Well, I'm mostly just excited that we uh, aren't saying formerly known as Twitter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I think I'm going to go back to just saying Twitter again. Yeah, I, I can't stand it. It drives me nuts. How are you feeling, sir? I'm doing good. I had uh, some health issues in, earlier in the week, but I'm back at them. Sweet. So uh, what's new in my world is a big announcement we will be making later on today's show. And what is new in my world will be what is new in your world as well next month. In other words, we have a big programming announcement about our upcoming end of year shows, which always includes our year end wrap up featuring the best of This Is Hell as determined by the staff and listeners of This Is Hell. This year we'll be playing your and our 13 favorite interviews Lucky 13, because this is hell, as chosen by you and us. We'll tell you exactly how you can nominate your favorite interviews of 2023 following our talk with Faye. 
coming up. Faith Lamb on the myth of men as hunters and women as gatherers. We will also have this week in, uh, no, we don't have this week in Rotten History. Uh, Dan will be sharing your answers. Dan and Chris will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell as we're posted at our Facebook group page. Welcome to the hell hole. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. Dan or Chris, what, do you know what's Jeff talking about this week? Oh, um, this week would be, uh, what are you uncritically supporting these days? No, that's the question oh, from hell. I'm throwing Chris to the little lions here. That's okay. That's okay. So, but that's great the because moment. we were going to, we were going to ask what is, uh, this week's question from hell for our listening audience. Again, what is it uh, again, Chris? Oh. Question from hell. Okay. Oh, well, what are you uncritically supporting these days? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our uh, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can leave it in our Facebook group. Welcome to the hellhole. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you can leave your answer there. Leave it in our Discord community or uh, just at our regular Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Uh, and uh, again, what Chris, what is uh, Jeff talking about this week? Uh, let's see. During the moment of truth. Uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff will come up with more I- Israeli propaganda that sets him up. Ah, sweet, that sounds good. And we'll tell you everything that's happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly Noam's gone insane. This is hell. We have been taught and told from a very, very early age that men are naturally hunters. And women are naturally gatherers, which reinforces a slew of beliefs. They're not necessarily grounded in any real evidence. That thinking has guided everything from the nuclear family to much of the sexism, bigotry, and patriarchy that thrives today. Here to help us understand what that myth is and why it still persists, science journalist and columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, Interviewer and explorer Faye Flam wrote the Noema magazine article, The Man, the Myth Hunter Won't Go Away. You can follow Faye on Twitter at Faye Flam and find out more about her as well as her podcast, The Science, uh, uh, her podcast, Follow the Science, by going to her website, FayeFlamWriter.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Faye. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is a fascinating story. It's something that I've been wanting to talk about because of the three studies that you point to, especially the one that came out uh, back in June. So I've been really looking forward to talking about this topic. You write, feeling an avalanche of change in the relations between and social roles for genders and sexes. Some people are reaching for solid ground in the prehistoric past when men were supposedly hunters and breadwinners while women stayed home and cared for their kids. Such a view of humanity's past went out the window in the anthropology community in the 1960s, though in the popular mind, myths associated with our hunter-gatherer past persist. So, Faye, why do those myths persist if the anthropology community debunked the myth more than a half century ago. Why haven't these myths been debunked when it comes to more popular or conventional wisdom or something that would be discussed on a regular basis, possibly, or at least alluded to within the mainstream establishment media? Why is this, why does this myth persist? Well, I think one reason is that things sort of get embedded in the popular imagination when um, the scientific community latches onto something. And scientists really um, started to understand evolution and humanity's long prehistory and the the importance of this 
uh, period of of hunting and gathering um, during a time um, during the, the the early 20th century when um, they were they were embedded in a sort of male centric culture and a sexist culture, and so some of those ideas got incorporated in the earliest pictures of our prehistory, and I think that sort of got kind of stuck in the popular imagination as well. And so as they've kind of gradually unraveled things, some of that hasn't gotten out to the general public. So, um, and, and also there there are, um, you know, there are uh, contemporary hunter-gatherer societies where there are these, sort of, you know, lots of different ways people make a living, but in some men do most of the hunting and in others, it's more 50-50. So this is a question I think that really fits in with the way, uh, with your past, with the way in which you uh, have written it many uh, publications. Why do you think it takes so long for science to have an impact on the popular imagination? As in this case, when we have anthropological studies dating back to the 1960s and even more recent ones just this year alone, when it comes to the man, the hunter myth, why does it take so long for science to have an impact on the popular imagination? You know, you know, people have lots of other things to think about besides science. And so there is a, often a delay. It could be just that this field hasn't really popularized itself. There have been some interesting new books, um, one called Sapiens that is very interesting, another called The Dawn of Everything. And both of those really go after a lot of common uh, misconceptions or just common prejudices about our past. Scientists are also still kind of um, working out some things. So when you think about human prehistory, we don't have a time machine. What we have are artifacts, which are subject to interpretation. And then we have a lot of uh, work that scientists have done going to different parts of the world and really embedding themselves with the few remaining hunter-gatherer groups and trying to understand how they live. Though they, we can't be sure that the way they, that the way those groups live um, are a true reflection of our past. They just give us a, a, some ideas about the possibilities. So this is an area of science that is, um, it requires a lot of interpretation. And it's also because I think it's so close to home for people that um, it's very easy to inject your preconceived prejudices into the science. The Dawn of Everything is written by David Wengro and uh, David Graber. David Graber had been on our show a couple of times in the past. And, uh, Faye, if we had a drinking game where every time David Graber or Dawn of Everything was mentioned on our show, people had to take a <laughs> shot, they would be drunk by the end of every week's show. <laughs> it comes up more and more, and people should really check out that book, as well as Sapiens that you mentioned. So uh, you mentioned these more recent studies of hunter-gatherer societies. You write a batch of new attempts by scientists to skewer what they call the man the hunter myth arrived this year one paper argued that women were as capable as men at hunting another that the archaeological records showed signs that women hunted and a third demonstrated that women hunted to some extent in almost 80 percent of the contemporary hunter-gatherer societies in the study those would be study uh, hunter-gatherer societies that are being observed now those studies 
are Women the Hunter, the physiological evidence, Women the Hunter, the archaeological evidence, which both appeared in September in the American Anthropologist by Kara Okobach and Sarah Lacey, and the Public uh, Library of Science study, The Myth of Man the Hunter, Women's con- Contribution to the Hunt Across Ethnographic Contexts by multiple authors, and both are peered review. When the Man the Hunter uh, myth was, uh, the, uh, the Myth of Man the Hunter was published back in June, I thought it seemed pretty obvious. I never really, but it's one of those things I didn't really think about before. It's like the, my first class that I had an introduction to physics. I was like, well, if I would thought about that for a while, that completely makes sense. I'm legally blind, so I figured that hunting would be based on physical capabilities and prowess, not on gender. I mean, it just makes sense. So what do you think leads us to believe a myth that on even the slightest reexamination clearly defies logic? Well, you know, I went to a lot of different anthropologists for this. And I was particularly interested in talking to the people that had spent years and years embedding themselves with different groups to 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 get what they had learned because this, you know, everybody has a little different picture of what our prehistory was like because they're hanging out with different groups. And one of the things I learned that really the 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 big kind of revelation that happened in the anthropology community happened in in the 1960s at a conference which was called man the hunter and at that conference people you know people kind of went into it thinking that hunting was the most important thing that people did you know because that was the main source of food the breadwinning was the hunting and they were surprised to find people come in and say well actually the the most reliable sources of food were from gathering and picking up small game and getting things that were sort of close to home that and that the women really were getting the most reliable sources of food that in groups where the men were going off long distances to hunt the women were actually the primary breadwinners and there are even some anthropologists that say well the hunting was kind of secondary you know because it was unreliable people would the men would go out and do it and come home empty handed some of the time and so so there's there's a school of thought which is still out there that the, that women did the gathering because that was the real breadwinning. So there's there's a lot going on. It's actually pretty complicated. And I think that in in some groups there is a more 50-50 mix um, where there's there are some groups where people hunt with nets and they they all go out together and do different things to catch animals. And then there are other groups where the the women um, don't do the big game long distance hunting. But they 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 are the ones that are getting the reliable sources of food. I I just I find that fascinating because as you point out, you know there are different types of hunter gatherer societies, and they hunt and they gather in different ways. Uh, as you uh, point out, that's just one way that uh, the ways that we think about hunter gatherers. There's just like we think that there's only one way that this actually occurred. Do different hunter-gatherer societies today, or those that have been observed by anthropologists, have different hunter-gatherer practices, including one that would not delineate in any way men as hunters and women as gatherers? Is our is that part of our understanding misunderstanding of the man the hunter myth that we just don't understand the way that hunting was done, or that we apply it all to all hunter-gatherer societies? Well, I think that that people have started because um, you know there's been a lot of interesting research that that has come together. Also, more women have entered anthropology and are 
able to sort of embed themselves with the women in these groups and get a better idea of what they're doing and what the kids are doing. So we're getting a, a more a more diverse picture of the ways that people live and often the way they live they live is affected by the resources in their area. And one of the questions I had when I first saw this story and wanted to do something was okay great so now they're learning that you know that women had there was a lot of diversity in what women did and some women like to hunt and went out and hunted and i said well what about the men i really i wanted to ask all these anthropologists well what about the men what if a man didn't like hunting what if he wasn't good at hunting what if he was nearsighted um and a lot of the scientists are nearsighted so they they uh, they kind of related to that question, <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm nearsighted too. I mean, I if I didn't have glasses, I wouldn't be able to see a thing. So, um, so you know, they uh, some of the anthropologists who studied the men said yes, indeed, not all the men are excellent hunters, and the important thing in, in hunter gatherer societies was just that you contributed in some way, and people would find different ways that that some men would be sort of hunting strategists, but wouldn't actually need to have good aim. And some would, would gather honey or they'd gather some other kind of resource that, that was traded or some were really more interested in marketing and, and trading and negotiation. So there were different jobs for different people. And it was a little different from the way we think of jobs because people did live in these more egalitarian groups and, they contributed skills, but it wasn't like you had a boss and you were assigned to do something for eight hours a day. It was very different, more like just being with a group of people and needing to accomplish things and having people kind of come to the table with whatever skills they could. So are the two roles, hunters and gatherers, not as separate and disconnected as we might imagine? Is the is part of the issue of our misunderstanding of the hunter-gatherer society and our past that we view hunters and gatherers as a kind of binary, uh, just like the binary of men and women. Is our is our misunderstanding of the past guided by our understanding that hunters and gatherers are two very separate groups and two very separate skills, and the the hunting and gathering are very separate uh, strategies. I think that's true. And I think that some of that comes back to just the fact that we're so used to this world where people have a job, you know, and they have uh, duties and it's all very clear cut and very strict. And we're just now kind of moving away from a world where gender roles were, were sort of stringently defined and people were not supposed to, you know, women were not supposed to do man things and men weren't supposed to do women things. And that, that, the, the anthropologists are saying, well, it looks like in hunter-gatherer societies, it was it was much less rigid that people did have some division of labor. And, and in a lot of groups, women gravitated toward different kinds of work than men, but that people, there was a lot of flexibility and that people could do what they were good at if that happened to be something that was more popular with the other gender, that was fine. And so the, the sort of rigidity was something that came along probably with farming communities and patriarchal society, which was was something that was imposed much later. So do we impose our present on our past? And for archaeologists, for anthropologists, for any field of science, how difficult is it for us to not impose our present beliefs on the past? 
It's really hard. I think that's why this area of science is so fascinating because it's so close to home compared to studying astrophysics or you know, even other animals. I mean, we're studying ourselves. And so just our experience of being a, a person is going to influence everything and the way we live now, the way that we've historically lived. And so, you know, there are a couple of different ways people have gone. Um, people have thought about this sort of world as as continuously progressing and imagining that life was worse and worse at the further back you go. And I think that goes back to Thomas Hobbes, who said life was nasty, short and brutish before civilization. And then you have this other picture, this this sort of um, in a rosier picture where there was a sort of a natural way that humans were made to live and born to live and evolved to live. And we lived that way in this sort of uh, ideal state of nature, and then everything kind of went to hell. And so you have these two very opposing views, and I think people have gravitated toward one or the other at different times. I think we're really moving a little, you know, we're we're moving toward right now, I think the, the more idealized stage, thinking that the past was this sort of ideal natural system. But some of the scientists I talked to said, well, we, we have to be careful about something called the naturalistic fallacy, which is the idea that there is a sort of perfect state of nature or perfect, perfectly natural way to live and that we should use the past to guide us. We should just see the past as what it was, whether it was better or worse than what we think we have now. I find that natural fallacy really interesting because that's always a word that's just tossed around uh, haphazardly, and that is this is the natural state of people. Uh, is part of the reason that we want to believe the man, the hunter myth then, because we want to believe that things are always getting better, that our future has a promise for hope at all times, that things, you know, if you talk to somebody about what is happening today with sexism and misogyny, they'll say, well, at least it isn't as bad as it was in the past. Is that the reason that we want to believe the man, the hunter myth? Because we want to believe that things are always getting better and that it is right right now, no matter what's happening in the world, better <laughs> than the past. Maybe, maybe that's part of it. I mean, it is better now than it has been in different parts of the past, but then there are other parts of the past that that might have, have been better and have something, you know, something to offer, something we can learn from. And I think that's one of the things that was also so fascinating about what these anthropologists were learning was it wasn't that the people they studied it had you know were living in the perfect natural way but that they were living in in ways that we might not have considered you know they were sort of showing us what's possible and a lot of them were very egalitarian so they they really had this kind of sense of respect natural respect for everybody that i think um we could learn something from so uh, you know, even even if you can avoid the naturalistic fallacy, I think there are really interesting lessons about how people could live in a very non-authoritarian non-authoritarian way. You write that uh, in some of those groups that have been observed uh, by anthropologists, hunter-gatherer groups, women and men uh, hunt together, and others, men do all the hunting, and still others, men and women, hunt different game with different techniques. Several anthropologists told me that when asked whose work is more important, people either say it's women's work or that the question makes no sense. It's like asking whether the heart or the lungs are more vital. Both are needed. So does the man, the hunter myth, in your opinion, impose a sense of competition between 
men and women in an artificial way and not cooperation, does it impose the idea that we have always competed against each other, that men versus women has always been a state of our being and not men working with women? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that, you know, there, there, there are people that, that look at sort of sexual conflict that men and women ha can be in conflict with each other because there are things men might want and women might want something else. But, but in order to survive, people do have to cooperate and humans, one of the things that really makes humans different from other species is how much we co cooperate with each other, that almost everything we do and everything we achieve is, is a group activity. And, you know, scientists, some of the man, the hunter idea goes back to, you know, trying to understand what makes us human. And these early scientists in the, in the fifties and sixties were, you know, were, were stuck on hunting as, you know, we, our, our, our uh, ape relatives are mostly vegetarian. They don't do that much hunting and, and they're looking at humans and saying, well, we do all this hunting. So that must be the thing that set us apart. And that has now been replaced by many, many other interesting ways that we differ from other animals that set us apart and may have influenced our evolutionary trajectory toward what we are now. And you write, uh, one of the big questions anthropologists want to solve is not just how we used to live, but how we became human, as you were just saying. Oh, what factors yeah. pushed our species to become so different from our closest relatives, chimpanzees and gorillas? Back in the 50s and 60s, some thought it came down to hunting, which was so challenging that it drove our transformation into the intelligent technological beings we are today. But today, scientists point to a variety of factors that pushed our evolution toward our current state, everything from cooking food, to grandparenting, to a form of self-domestication where females choose less aggressive, more caring males for mates. In the 50s and 60s, the understanding was, as you were saying, we separate ourselves from primates because of the complexities of hunting and hunting alone. Now we understand being human, as you describe it, also happened because we learned to cook, parenting, self-domestication, women choosing less violent mates. What does the belief that we became human by hunting and hunting alone, uh, what does that reveal to you about conventional wisdom and popular beliefs in the 50s before the man, the hunter myth was dispelled? What kind of ideas do you think that reinforces? I think it really, yeah, if you if you look at the, that culture of that time, you know, it was the Cold War. It was a time when people sort of maybe valued being warlike or tried to justify it. Um, we, we were in a, a nuclear buildup. Um, and it was a time, you know, it was a very patriarchal time um, compared to now. And and so I think people were embedded in that and that influenced the way they saw hunting as this, playing the central role in our evolution. And, you know, this is all, the whole idea of evolution came along relatively recently in the history of science. So our first picture of it, I think, was influenced a lot by the culture of the early 20th century. And that, you know, that has gradually changed. And we, you know, one of the, one of the scientists that, that I talked to said, well, the, you know, the main way that our, our diets are different from other primates is that almost everything in the human diet has to be processed in some way, you know, has to be ground and, and um, peeled and chopped and cooked. And that, that is what, what makes us different. And in every culture, that's, 
that's done. It's an important job. Um, often it's the women who do that. And so again, um, maybe it's being chefs that makes us different more so than being hunters. We are speaking with science journalist and columnist for uh, Bloomberg Opinion, interviewer and explorer Faye Flam, who wrote the Noema magazine article, The Man the Hunter Myth Won't Go Away. You can find out more about Faye at fayeflamwriter.com, where you can find a link to her podcast, Follow the Science. You can also follow uh, Faye on Twitter, at Faye Flam. Why, this is something that, that's always kind of bugged me. In your opinion, why do we want to recognize that the way we live today is natural instead of being driven by choice? Why do we want to think this is a natural state of being and not a culmination of choices that we have made? I th- I don't know. I think people uh, people actually look to the are looking to the past to find the, the the true natural way. I think people actually assume that the way we live now is unnatural, which is why everybody wants to look at at you know they want to eat the paleo diet. You know they want to do they want to live like the caveman did. So there is a lot of I think a lot of popular interest in the the idea that we we should try to be more like our distant ancestors now, if anything. I think people just assume we live in this really crazy artificial world, and yet we're all shaped by our culture. But the the one shortcoming of that is, and this is something you were pointing out earlier, we can't obviously live in the past, but we can learn from the past and move forward. Why do you think that there is this, well, uh, in your opinion, why is this kind of, yes, we want to go back to a better past, not say, why doesn't it take that next step, as you were saying earlier, of learning from the past, not just reproducing and replicating the past? Yeah, I think that's that's a message that I I got from so many different scientists I interviewed on this story. You know, I I went to ten or twelve different anthropologists who had lived with different groups and who had learned different things and had some had studied the kids and one studied what she called the old ladies and one you know they some went out and and hunted with the men and weren't very good at it and. You know, there were so they, so they had seen all of these different things, and their message was that th- these are just ways, we, things we can learn from. That, you know, things that we can use to help understand ourselves, and maybe also, even if it's not, none of them have, nobody has stumbled across the perfect way to live. Um, they can, they can inspire us in some ways. And and we do, ha- we are the ones who have to decide how we live in the future. And so, you know, I think seeing different things that are possible can be helpful for us so that we don't get stuck thinking this is the only, you know, if we don't live in this certain way, we will, you know, if we don't have a lot of hierarchy hierarchies or we don't have rigidly defined roles for people, that society will fall apart. So by looking at people who live in different ways, I think um, we can learn that, yes, there are many very different ways to live that will not cause the fabric of society to fall apart. You write that male-dominated structure is associated with ownership of land and control of wealth, which came from surplus crops. These were often inherited through male lines, but hunter-gatherer societies didn't own land and nomadic communities usually didn't even retain more possessions than they could transport from one camp to the other. 
why would agriculture create a fertile environment, if you will, for the ascension of patriarchy? How could have uh, agriculture contributed to a more male-dominated society? Well, I think yeah, and that gets to you know. So I could I could, should name that yes. The, the the I'll have to take another shot to to mention the the David Graeber book, but. Um, I think, yeah, that, that a lot of the, the newer books on this topic have gotten into the fact that you, when you don't have wealth, then you, it, it, you don't have the opportunity for inequality. You don't have the opportunity for hoarding. There's nothing to hoard. You know, everybody's sort of, uh, the, the natural world is there for everybody. And when people get, get something, find something, you know, they, they, want to share it they don't want to hoard it they want to they want to share it with everybody in the group and i think that once you get get to a farming society where you have the ability to to accumulate wealth then you have the opportunity for some people to accumulate a lot of wealth and then you have the opportunity to exploit people who who either don't have land or don't have the ability to make money then then you have the opportunity to do all kinds of things that aren't possible with with a, um, a hunter-gatherer group. And hunter-gatherers rarely telling each other what to do, as you were pointing out earlier. There is no boss. And group decision-making falling to those men or women who are, as you uh, talk about, most articulate and uh, wise. You write, despite the fact that scientists have understood this for decades, popular myths still feed into those stereotypes. What impact do you believe popular recognition, public acceptance, of you know patriarchy not being natural what do you think what kind of impact do you think that would have on society today is that the reason that we don't want to accept or uh, disavow the idea of the man the uh, hunter myth because we do not want to disturb the system of patriarchy possibly and i think people don't really see the that the uh span of time backwards that humans Agriculture is a relatively recent um, invention, and humans, for the vast majority of our existence on this planet, were hunter-gatherers. So, you know, it wasn't like we went through a short hunter-gatherer stage and then a honey, and then a um, and then a farming stage. Farming was relatively recent, and so the way that hunter-gatherers live is the way that everybody lived for a couple of for the, the the whole you know most of the span of our species existence and the period long period before that a couple million years when humans were in a somewhat different form we were we had our our genus homo had evolved but we were going through different different stages of evolution so i think when you sort of see the span of time the way that 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 scientists see it then you see this you know farming as and, and patriarchy and these things as relatively recent inventions. You also write that our past can give people a way to understand ourselves and our changing culture in a wider context. There's a great deal of confusion about gender, what it means to be male or female, and how men and women are supposed to relate to each other and the world around us. Did roles undetermined by gender lead to what today we may consider confusion about gender is today's i guess there's a better way to phrase this question is today's confusion the egalitarianism of the past 
Well, I think today's confusion maybe because we are in a period of transition again, and so people are struggling a little bit. I think that the, if anything, the roles for the for women, you know, the female role is 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 flexible. That people, you know, women can be more or less, you know, feminine or boyish or whatever we want to be, and people aren't really concerned. I think there's there seems to be a lot of concern among men about what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to be and how, you know, that somehow they should be masculine and they're not sure what that even entails anymore. So I feel like if you look on YouTube, you know, and you see these videos by, you see videos by gurus trying to tell men how to be men or how to be masculine, you don't quite see the same thing with gurus telling women how to be, that women seem to be allowed to just be. Except for those weird, uh, really rich women influencers that you, the mom influencers, as we discussed with Sophia, uh, Sophie Lewis earlier this year, uh, sometimes. But that's all just about capitalism and commodification and trying to sell something <laughs> online, though. So you mentioned uh, Kim Hill, an anthropologist who has spent almost half a century studying hunter-gatherer societies around the world. Hill tells you that in the groups uh, he's studied, between two percent and five percent of biological males in hunter-gatherer groups groups are effectively transgender. He's observed them in groups he's studied, the Aceh of South America, the Kuna of Panama, and hunter-gatherers in the Philippines. You then quote Hill uh, telling you, they dressed and did their hair like women and adopted female body language, postures, etc. You add, they were mainly involved in gathering plant resources, helping with childcare and tending to the sick. And Hill explains, they were generally accepted and even appreciated. They were definitely not social outcasts. You conclude their role was considered a natural one. Do we know what that role was? And do the most recent anthropological studies of hunter-gatherer society suggest being transgender, transgender is not anything new as a lot of people want to think it is? No, it's, I mean, yes, there are some, there's some new medical things out there, but being transgender is definitely not new. It's, it's very old. Yeah. He sort of, when I talked to Dr. Hill, he sort of dropped that like, oh yeah, well, you know, about 5% of men in, in the groups I studied were transgender. And I, and I said, what, wait, wait, so, so tell me more about that. And he said, yeah, there, and they, they, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it, a certain number of men will take on, you know, female uh, dress and hairstyles, but it's but the the type of work they do is really important because, um, you know, human children are so relatively helpless for long enough that people really need a lot of help. Mothers need a lot of help. People need a lot of help around home, and so there it's they're they're very welcome to be there to help their their relatives their female relatives to keep things together so you know as i think that the some of the other anthropologists said the important thing for people was just that they did that they contributed that they helped that they did things that that helped everybody get fed and helped everybody survive and so those transgender men were doing work that everybody appreciated but also i think it speaks to the to the lack of rigidity that people were okay with that that they accepted that that human beings are diverse and you know we we all sort of have different temperaments and different things we like and people were allowed to to do and dress and act the the way they liked many times not not 
having to to follow a particular script. Do you think that, you know, the kind of wealth accumulation you were talking about with the advent of agriculture, do you think that lends to that rigidity of the way that we think about men and women? It seems to go along with that. And some of the, the, the anthropologists I talked to said that indeed, yeah, that they think that that rigidity seems to go along with being in farming communities. In fact, uh, some of the, the anthropologists actually studied hunter-gatherers who lived in close proximity to hunting um, and to uh, farming societies. And so they would talk about, you know, what they didn't like about their farming neighbors, about the way they lived, about their values. So in the farming communities, um, you know, people, children could be beaten and they were had to be obedient. And in hunter-gatherer societies, children were free and it was taboo to 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 um to abuse physically abuse kids or abuse spouses but not in the in the um you know in the farming communities the neighboring farming communities it was acceptable a certain amount of violence um domestic violence was acceptable and women had to obey their husbands and the you know the groups that lived alongside them. The hunter-gatherer groups looked at this and thought, "This is this is you know antithetical to the way we live and to our values." You mentioned another anthropologist, Kristen uh, Hawks, uh, from the University of Utah, and you write that she, uh, or sorry, Kristen Hawks, the anthropologist, says the role of older women is vital in the groups she studies and believes grandmothers' hunting and gathering was so important in our past that it drove the evolution of menopause in the human lineage after we split off from other apes. This early programmed end of fertility is extremely rare in mammals, most reproduce until they are near death, and only humans, orcas, and short-finned pilot whales are known to lose fertility in midlife. Menopause allows women a long period of time when they're still strong and vigorous, but free from the need to care for their own infants. Infants In such societies, were the relatively elderly not taken care of as much as the relatively elderly cared for others? Were they not the kind of so-called burden on society as they are viewed today? That's actually the topic of the, the next story I want to write. About. <laughs> As I was reporting this, I was thinking, you know, it was so interesting that, in fact, yeah, I mean, you know, because women lose their fertility relatively early in life when they're still pretty strong and functioning and and they can go out and hunt and they, they don't have the burden of having little kids around. And that in the groups that, that Dr. Hawk studied, the, the grandmothers were extremely important in in provisioning the family. So it was, you know, it was very different from this picture of the men going out and hunting and providing all the food. It was the the men went out and provided some food and the mothers got some food and then grandma got a whole lot of food. And then I talked to some other people, including Dr. Hill, who said, oh, well, wait a minute, the grandfathers were out there doing stuff too, you know, so um, don't leave them out. So these sort of, you know, older generation grandparent generation were also out there getting food for the family and um you know people generally i think were uh, were fairly healthy and could you know could continue to to function up until um you know later ages though i i will say science has a way of surprising us because about two weeks after this story ran there was a paper showing that some of the other uh the great apes seem to have some form of menopause too. So um, science is always throwing new things at us that uh, are making us have to rethink. 
New you, think you also write that there are lessons that can help both men and women navigate a world undergoing dramatic changes. You then quote Professor Polly Weisner, who is also an anthropologist, saying, today in Africa and other developing countries, a lot of emphasis is on development for women, getting women into business and earning their own income. But Weisner went on to say, it's been shown that when you have development programs for both men and women together, it greatly takes the burden off of women. Does the understanding of men the hunter lead to gendered ideas on development? Does it drive us apart instead of bringing us together? It could be, it could be, because one thing that she said was that, well, they, the women were not very happy if they got, you know, got support, but they had this husband who felt useless because he didn't have a job or, you know, could somehow couldn't, couldn't contribute. And then that would cause the husband to drink too much and cause problems and that they were much happier if that there was support so that everybody could feel useful and important and have a way to contribute. And so she thought that, yeah, indeed that, you know, what the, what the women wanted was help to, to, um, you know, start businesses and do things, but they, they also wanted a husband who could contribute as well. Just a few more questions for you. You write the surge in popularity of people like psychologist Jordan Peterson or podcaster Joe Rogan testify to the gender confusion many men feel. You then quote Peterson saying, women know what they have to do. Men have to figure out what they have to do. You add recently the Washington Post ran an opinion article under the headline, men are lost. Here's a map of the wilderness. It detailed a litany of problems some men face as they struggle to find meaningful work and relationships. Men having to figure out what to do, being lost. How does that reinforce any sense of patriarchy? Is this more than, you know, what it seems like it's trying to be is self-deprecating? I think if anything, it may be a, uh, you know, a sort of a, a, um, a symptom of the patriarchy uh, 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 that that they feel like, well, there should be this role for me. There should be this defined role. And that we're we're you know we're struggling a little bit to understand what our roles should be in today's society but in hunter-gatherer societies people apparently could have different roles so right if you had a had a were visually impaired in some way and most of the men hunted but that wasn't really your thing you would find something else and everybody would be perfectly happy with that and so I think the idea that people just had to find their own role, it didn't have to be a male role or a female role or a specific role, um, was very freeing for people. And that I think women are are could be more free from that right now than men, that men seem to still feel like, well, I don't know what my role is, but somehow it has to be a proper male role. And I don't think that was that was the case in um, you know, in, in, in the great sweep of of human existence, I think people have been able to find different roles from for themselves without necessarily having to to conform that way. You write that most other mammals, even the fleetest ones, will become exhausted and overheat if they have to run more than six to ten miles in the heat of the day. Humans can eventually outrun them thanks to our unique hips, legs waist and gluteus maximus and especially our ability to sweat the longer the distance the more women excel compared to men in mixed sex competitions women are winning and setting new records in 100 and 200 mile ultra marathons 
So women are proving to be better than men at ultramarathons, which explains why I guess ultramarathons aren't on ESPN. Uh, so ultramarathons prove, do, does that prove to you that the man, the hunter, is it proving to us right now through sports that man, the hunter is a myth? Well, that was part of one of those three papers. They were looking at, this is sort of another factor besides the, you know, the archaeological record and current hunter-gatherers. You also have, you know, you can look at human physiology. And there are anthropologists who have argued for years that long-distance running is one of these really weird, unique human traits that even animals that are a lot faster than us cannot run a marathon. And that this may have been important for hunting and you know being able to sort of track down and, and outrun and exhaust prey and women are you know women start to excel and do at least as well as men as, as the distances get longer and longer so that was in one of these papers and i thought that was just a really interesting observation that could speak to the fact that um if women wanted to be hunters they they were physically capable of doing what was considered one of the most important parts of hunting for early hunter-gatherers would have been being able to run long distances. One last question for you, Faye. We have been speaking with science journalist and columnist for a Bloomberg Opinion interviewer and explorer, Faye Flam, who wrote the Noema magazine article, The Man, the Hunter Myth Won't Go Away. She is the podcast host of Follow the Science. You can find Follow the Science, a link to it, at her website, fayflamwriter.com. And you can follow Faye on Twitter, at Faye Flam. Faye, our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Our question from hell for you is, does the archaeological record, does what we know right now from anthropology, from current studies in anthropology, especially these three most recent studies, does that prove that we are all naturally egalitarian commies? <laughs> I <laughs> well, I would say that violates the naturalistic fallacy. <laughs> so, so you can't that 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 somehow there is a natural way for humans to be. But I will say that being egalitarian commies has worked well for many people in the past. <laughs> that is a fantastic answer to the question from Hal Faye. Thank you so much for being on our show. We'll stay in contact with you because I've really enjoyed our conversation today. <laughs> Thank you. All right, take care. All right, I got to put that down in the keywords over here for what we'll be using as a poll quote because that was fantastic. Ah, the future ain't what it used to be. This is hell, and we were just talking about that. And judging from what we were discussing with Faye, the past ain't what it was either. If you learned from our talk with Faye that the man as hunter myth is just that a myth. Support completely listener-supported This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber on Patreon. As a subscriber, you get access to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast exclusively for Patreon patrons. And is podcast shortly, er, it's, you know, streams live uh, this week on Friday morning at 10 a.m. And is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. By becoming a Patreon member, not only do you get the bonus weekly podcast with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online, you also get a secret special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all This Is Hell merch. You also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it's first announced on Patreon. And our newest feature every week, whoever is producing, chooses 
is a question from hell for me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, live streaming host, podcast host as well, submitted by our Patreon subscribers, a question that I have not seen nor heard until our producer asked it on the Patreon podcast. That's all on This Is Hell on Patreon and only at Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell we got a lot of we got stuff in the mail we got stuff on discord we got emails we got people posting on facebook we have people contributing to the show listeners contributing to the show in many different ways giving us their thoughts and opinions and we will be sharing those on tomorrow's show including including getting stuff like like i was saying in the actual mail we got some more stuff from kennedy prince we'll be telling you about that shortly. Dan or Chris, whoever wants to do this, uh, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far at our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. Yeah, the question from hell is what are you uncritically supporting these days? What are you uncritically supporting these days? And so how are people responding at the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group? Some There's some interesting answers. Uh, I recognize an old comrade of mine, Kriyaj L. He wrote, <laughs> Palestine protests and human compassion, which seems like is gaining adherence. Kriyaj is really wonderful. Uh, met her at uh, the uh, This Is Hell anniversary party this year, and she bought something at the This Is Art art show. So thank you very much for all of your support, Kriyaj. And also, real quick fun fact about her. I met her because we used to counter-protest Proud Boys in Schaumburg together. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Wow, what a surprise. Are you telling me there's Proud Boys in Schaumburg? That is really stunning to me. I would have never guessed that. Yeah, they come from Rockford, actually, another weird place. They just (laughs) take over a shopping mall, at least a corner of it, which is pathetic, but yeah. Um, And let's see here. The other answer is from Rob H., and he wrote, Naps. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so he's uncritically supporting naps. I totally do as well. Very type A. Uh, <laughs> and also, uh, Jeffrey Dorchen, uh, Hefe Dorchen wrote, Belief in a roughly spherical Earth. That's about as far out on the limb as I can go. <laughs> All right. And Braden S. wrote, Calling in sick to work. That's, That's my favorite. That is a good one. <laughs> uh, Pete V. wrote, My pants. All right. And uh, let's see here. Noel S. wrote breathing, and I can pronounce this same because I speak Polish. Wojciech R. wrote your mom. <laughs> this God. one from Gen D is really good. It's my ambient habit. Good lord, I hope you're not driving. <laughs> <laughs> Any more? Uh, yeah, Clay G. wrote good music. All right. Uh, this is a good one. Austin S. wrote, Weed naps and disassociating. <laughs> that's very good. <laughs> I think that's everybody nowadays, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Louis D. wrote, My 97-year-old cousin, good politics, and good snacks. <laughs> that's the snacks that really makes him a good cousin. <laughs> uh, Sarah G. wrote, Live and let live. All right. Ronaldo M. wrote Pasta Fazul. Always. He always writes Pasta Fazul. <laughs> Mark A. wrote Leftover Halloween Candy. <laughs> All right. Erica L. wrote My Dog. Ooh, and Scott P. wrote Three Words for You, Chuck Mertz, Porcine Diarrhea Epidemic. <laughs> That's the general manager of CKUW, Winnipeg's Community Radio, who we are broadcast on every week. Class act all the way, Scott P. <laughs> Excuse me. Barbara K. wrote soda made with real sugar. That's true. Uh, Nikki. I like how Dan's agreeing with me in the background. I wish I had something You know, uh, right here at the corner, Farm City, they have like, you'll find seven Arabic, seven up 
that is with real sugar, as well as, you know, HO in Mexico, Coca-Cola's and all that, that you will find whatever normal mainstream crap soda that you hate because it's got corn syrup, you'll find it here at the corner at Farm City and it's much better. And uh, Nikki wrote, guitars as a force of good in the country. No, all right. Kobe's wrote, collapse. <laughs> and Lawrence L. wrote, you want my support? You get my criticism at no extra charge. No, sweet. Doesn't charge us. Uh, Ladiero, me, it is not working. Capital letters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Julie M. wrote, squirrels. And Mike W. wrote, not... Not to be too much of a brown nose, but I support TIH and Chuck, and so should you. Uh, thank you, Julie. That's very sweet of you. We owe you a uh, question from hell gift, by the way, from an earlier question from hell that you won. Is that it for Welcome to the Hellhole? Oh, uh, one last one. All right. Esel S. Road, the demon on your mom's butt. <laughs> Good lord. We have a very classy listening audience, and I really want to tip my hat to every one of you who always shows the proper etiquette <laughs> answering the question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, tweet it at us, or whatever, exit at us. It doesn't even make sense. You can post it on in our uh, Patreon community. Uh, our, on our Patreon page in our Discord community. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing the, this week's winner following Seb Vooper and the past inside the present. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. Coming up, Jeff and the moment of truth. We will tell you who our next guest will be, and we have a couple of big programming and oh, well, a big programming announcement, as well as an announcement of an upcoming This Is Hell event to share with you. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. I dare you. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. What? The Zionist Rhetorical Imagination With a similarly bipolar contrition as displayed by the Israeli Defense Forces, I'm sorry to inflict more Israel-Palestine rhetoric on you, but there are a couple three more pieces of pretty annoying Israeli propaganda memes that Zionists for continued massive retaliation are wielding. Meme 1 Israel is the last best hope for Jews to avoid being victims of another holocaust. The trigger word, Kristallnacht, keeps appearing in this context. If you're for peace, you're in favor of Kristallnacht. The way the first holocaust unfolded, the cause admittedly wasn't that all the Jews in the world were packed into a sliver of land besieged by enemies on all sides under a belligerent, corrupt government that was our only hope. Granted, Something we haven't ever tried before. Packing all of us together seems a counterintuitive strategy to avoid being destroyed en masse. But as long as the U.S. military is ready to support this last best hope for the Jews, it just might work. 
As for whether or not the current action against Gaza is genocide, I'm almost positive that whether or not your aim is genocide, if being compared to historically murderous anti-Semites gets your niggers in a twist, I have a feeling doing pogroms and ghetto liquidations to a minority population aren't the tried and true methods of preventing such aggravation. Meme 2. Gaza could have been paradise if only they'd voted for Fatah instead of Hamas in 2006. No denying Hamas leadership has misused funds, opportunities, and violence with habitual lack of regard for the effect it would have on civilian Palestinians. However, the idea that somehow Israel under its modus operandi of manipulating its occupied Palestinian population would ever allow the people of Gaza to create the jewel of the Middle East, or anything resembling a jewel rather than an enclosure to contain and maintain poverty, is truly a sick tune to warble to people while they're being bombed, fleeing a campaign of extermination. But, comes the reply, remember the things Hamas did on October 7th in the kibbutzim they attacked were so barbaric that it justifies any ongoing displays of mental illness by supporters of Israel. In paraphrasing this rationale, I'm only being half sarcastic. If Gazans had only elected Fatah instead of Hamas, Gaza could have been a high-tech luxury beach resort, the jewel of the Middle East. But instead, they chose violence and hatred, and that's why they're currently being pounded to bloody rubble. It's their own fault. Or, as an NYU law school professor puts it in Haaretz, doing our minds the courtesy of differentiating between Hamas and non-terrorist Gazans. What if Hamas had taken its cue not from the Muslim Brotherhood, but rather the Kurds of Kurdistan or African Americans, who certainly didn't win their civil rights by becoming domestic terrorists? Not sure this gentleman is aware what happened to Black Wall Street, how the Harlem Renaissance was undermined, the way drugs were introduced into the black community, the reaction to the Black Panthers' breakfast and education programs, and how those fighting for civil rights were in fact considered by their endo-colonial government the terrorists of the time, much as the Jews ethnically cleansed during the quelling of the Warsaw Uprising were labeled hooligans, in the report to SS leader Himmler by General Jürgen Stroop. What the hell is this doofus talking about? Even accepting the dubious premise that Israel was a hands-off, non-occupying, non-meddling neighbor state for the last 10 years, would Gaza have somehow changed from the world's most densely populated urban center to a beachside capitalist vacation spot without hundreds of thousands of Gazans being pushed into massive urban poverty? What warped form of creative visualization is this? It's more than a bit grotesque to taunt millions of people with what could have been if only you'd made the right choice while they're being wiped out with bombs, white phosphorus, and bullets. But I suppose it's more hope than the Nazis gave those in the Warsaw Ghetto, even if it's a hope that slipped through the fingers in the past. Then again, at least the Nazis didn't lecture the Jews on what mistakes they'd made that condemned them to the death camps, overdue library books, parking fines, polluting Aryan blood and culture. But enough about how much more humane the Nazis were than the Israeli propaganda state is proving to be at this moment.
comparing Israel to the icons of evil whose goal was to exterminate all the Jews of Europe is no less sickening to me than the blame the victim Gaza as paradise mockery. The propagandists brought it up, though. But still, I admit fault. Zionism is not Nazism. It's not even an anagram of Nazism. Zionism is the demand for a Jewish nation. There's nothing in the nature of a Jewish nation that has to be oppressive, undemocratic, or even ethno-nationalistic. Whether circumstances were ever right for such a nation to blossom or transform into such a place, one without de facto apartheid or spasms of ethnic cleansing and everyday harassment, is just another what-if question. As is the question of whether or not there is a desirable future possible for any nation that refuses to confront its violence or provocations of violence, whether that nation be Israel or Palestine, or both, separately or together. But that's not an over-and-done-with woulda-coulda-shoulda what-if question. It's a question about where things go from here. Meme 3. Israel's military is more compassionate than any other in history. The IDF is the only army in history that has ever warned people where and when they were going to bomb is, quite simply, a falsehood. As any cursory examination of history, such as Googling warning before bombing, will reveal. Leaflets were dropped by the British on Afghanistan in the 30s, by the Allies on Italy and Germany in the 30s and 40s. We even dropped leaflets warning those living in Hiroshima that we were going to bomb them. Wasn't that kind of us? So why peddle this lie? Many Jews find it a comfort to tell themselves and their children the fairy tale of the miraculously compassionate army. We came in peace, the Arabs started it, the Palestinians forced our children to kill theirs, the Palestinians don't even love their children. They use them as human shields, forcing the most compassionate military in history to kill even more of them. My experience is messages like this are typical Ashkenazi Jewish fodder for indoctrination from the first youthful exposure to the conflict, and it stays with those who require an infallible state to worship along with the God whose mysterious motives they argue about. I mean, if you can't have a faultless God, at least you can have a state you're required to accept uncritically. That's all I have either the time or patience for. I'm sure new rhetorical palliatives for the Zionist conscience will continue to appear. I understand that many of my Jewish friends feel both threatened and disgusted by free Palestine marches happening all over the world. That doesn't turn denying reality into an act of brave rebellion. It seems more like a temporary reflex of willful ignorance or even cowardice. Calling it temporary might be my own form of self-protective denial. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Jeffy, that was really great. Last week's moment of truth, a lot of people really enjoyed that as well. And I'm going to ask you my question from hell for you. So people can find this on your Substack. Do you know where your Substack is now? Yes, it's uh, it, you know, it's there a Substack. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I still have a, uh, one of them is a, a, a newsletter from some flounder. Okay. And another one is called Write Twice a Day. So why do you have two? R I G H T. Why do you have two different Substacks? Well, one is just the newsletter, and 
I honestly don't know. <laughs> but it's just like I started. I started to, and then you're terrible at the question from hell. People started started this. It's a question from hell, Chuck. <laughs> it, people started subscribing to both, and so I couldn't like discontinue one. Sure. Without and so, do you have the moment of truth at both? I have the moment of truth text and uh, text oh. and audio at one and just the audio at another i see so just to continue the confusion just to continue the confusion and to make my life a little bit more busy because <laughs> basically i don't have anything to do uh, <laughs> by the way i i did want to i did want to disagree with your last guess about sapiens that book i still have not you know that book don't um, read it it is garbage you know I'm sorry i, I uh that was a somebody who i had uh, someone suggested to me as the guest and to be a guest on the show. And then I looked into it and uh, several different people who have been on the show in the past said, eh, it's a really poor attempt at what it's trying to do. Well, the guy isn't an expert at what he's as at what he's writing about. He's a historian, but he's writing about prehistory, anthropology, and things that he doesn't know anything about. Wen Gro and Graeber, who wrote Dawn of Everything, are experts in those fields. Right. And they they're doing like a whole survey of new research that hasn't been popularized until they wrote it all down in one place. So which is a brilliant thing to do. So now, Sapiens does not get the moment of truth seal of approval. I'm saying that comparing Sapiens with Dawn of Everything is like comparing the Three Stooges to Kung Fu Hustle. <laughs> yeah, but Kung, but uh, the Three Stooges are so much better. <laughs> there wouldn't, I will say this, there wouldn't be a, a Kung Fu Hustle without the Three Stooges. <laughs> but I'm not sure that, I, you know, that's like saying a Model T is better than a... a Gee, I don't know. What's a good car anymore? Um, ah, forget it. We don't have any good cars. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Until next no time. What? Stay beautiful. I'll try. Oh, wait. Yeah. Wait, Chuck. Yes. Kate Sykes won her city council seat. I don't know if you knew this, but you know, I'm here staying. So with, this is Dr. Uh, Chris, Chris Bigasinski, our former contributor and producer on the show. Uh, she won a city council seat last night in Portland, Maine. Congratulations to Kate. Chris Busby is a big fan of our show. He is the person who is the editor-in-chief of The Ballard. The Ballard big fans of the show. They uh, gave us a subscription to give out to a, uh, a listener who came to the This Is Hell anniversary party and they won in the raffle a subscription to that magazine so it's all part of that crazy portland crowd and congratulations to uh kate and jeffy until next time yes stay beautiful i will live from land stolen from the potawatomi people this is hell we wrap up every year by playing the best interviews featured on this is hell that year so this is our big programming announcement. We're going to be doing that again this year, but with a little bit of a twist. This year, beginning on Monday, December 4th, and throughout the entire month of December, we will be playing the year's best interviews as selected by listeners as well as our staff. We'll also be doing that on Monday, January 2nd, the first... The, Day that we would have had a show, but who the hell wants to do a show on the day after New Year's? We will return with new, all new live shows on Tuesday, January 3rd. 
That's the lucky 13 best interviews of 2023 as chosen by our staff and you, the listening audience. Usually we share the end of year best of shows from Christmas through New Year's while I'm visiting family for the holidays and producers uh, host those shows. This year, however, while we will be playing the best interviews of 2023 throughout December, I will still be here hosting the show, except for the week between Christmas and New Year's as I will be unavailable. There will be new hangover cures, questions from hell. We will share whatever you write to us via whatever platform you write to us on. There will be new past inside the present segments, new rotten history, and moments of truth, as well as new Patreon podcasts. In other words, there will be all new shows except the interviews from will be from earlier this year. So throughout December, we will be doing new shows, but they will be featuring the very best of This Is Hell from 2023. So we want to hear from you. Tell us what your favorite interviews were this year. The conversations that get the most nominations or votes or whatever will be shared throughout December. We will also thank you on air for your interview suggestions. That's the best of 2023 throughout December and the f- January 3rd as well with new or January 2nd as well with new hangover cures questions from hell listener feedback as well as new past inside the present segments new rotten histories new moments of truth as well as new patreon podcasts this is a great time to tell your family and friends about this is hell as we will be playing the very best of the show as chosen by you and our staff it's a great way to introduce family and friends about this is hell so First of all, Dan, Chris, whoever wants to do this, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Uh, coming on next. Uh, over here. I'm going to point uh, Chris at it. There you go. Last minute. Uh, coming on Thursday will be um, a professor and chair of UCLA's Department of English, Sari McDesey, returns to This Is Hell to talk uh, about his N plus one article on Gaza, no human being can ca- no human being can exist. How can a person make up for seven decades of misrepresentation and willful distortion in the time allotted to soundbite? So Sari was on our show way back on April 1st, 2006 to talk about the just concluded Israeli elections at the time. And so he is going to be back on the show for the first time in 17 years. And I seriously doubt that he remembers being on the show. We have one other big announcement to make this. Sorry. The annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party is happening on Wednesday, December 20th, on Winter Solstice Eve. Mark your calendars now. Is your work not having an office party? Then tell your friends at work to drop by for the holiday office party happening that Wednesday downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Does your place of employment have an office party? But to be honest, you're not crazy about the people you work with. Then make our holiday office party your holiday office party with the people who you do get along with at work. Does your work not have an office? Then make our holiday office party your holiday office party. Do you live somewhere outside of Chicago and can't make it to This Is Hell office hours, our weekly Wednesday meet and greet that's really a drink and think? 
Join us when you are in town for the holidays for our annual This Is Hell holiday office party happening on Winter Solstice Eve, Wednesday, December 20th, beginning around 6 p.m. and going until who knows when. By the way, office hours are happening tonight. Where is that is happening tonight? I'm going to go with are. Happening tonight at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Avon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, and we hope to see you there. Thanks to Chris Colfan and to Dan Kugler for producing. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. This is not the media. This is hell.